0: Tickets are now on sale for the 2023 TCT Awards. On June the 7th, the 3D Printing and Additive Manufacturing Community will come together to celebrate the latest technology innovations and application developments at the fifth annual TCT Awards ceremony. The world's preeminent 3D Printing and Additive Manufacturing Awards program, TCT Awards, is held alongside TCT 360 in Birmingham in the UK. To book your tickets, visit www.tctawards.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest instalment of our Innovators on Innovators series. On this episode, Tangible Solutions Director of Engineering Matt Schomper sits down with Duann Scott, a Design for Additive Manufacturing consultant and the Executive Director of the 3MF Consortium. On the agenda today is Computational Design. With Matt leveraging his 10 plus years of experience in medical device development, and Duan leaning on the learnings he has picked up from stints at Shapeways, Autodesk, topology, and more. Throughout their conversation, the pair discuss design best practices, the significance of designing parameters as well as parts, and the importance of accessing knowledge that might be patent protected. They also assess the design software tools currently on the market. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more Additive Insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly Additive Insight newsletter for free.
2: Hey Matt, Uh, so I guess I want to sort of ask um, what your plans are to do with your career now that AI is going to take over all the design tasks for engineering, biomedical <laughs> devices and everything in the next uh, three to six months, apparently.
3: Well, uh, I don't have enough money to retire. So I'm gonna have to figure out something, but, uh, you, you do bring up, a you, have sensationalized, sensationalized it. Well, yeah. uh, um, you know, actually I was just talking about this with somebody the other day, uh, he, he was actually, a like a an artist, you know, a designer, digital designer. Mm-hmm. And um, with regards to the prevalence of um, these stable diffusion models and uh, with word prompts, creating some honestly pretty cool art. I think that he, we were talking about like, it was like steampunk, uh, yeah. char- steampunk like Marvel characters. Yeah, And one of the things he was saying is people don't realize that these compositions that they see still have a monstrous amount of like post processing to them and editing and getting keywords, right? Because if you take the same prompts, you're like, oh, I'm going to steampunk spider-man and you put it into a similar algorithm, you're likely going to get something weird. I don't know if you've seen like the Google, like the dream, uh, I don't remember what it's called, the DreamWorks thing where they, it's just, it was kind of like the, the, the beginning synthesis of some of this stuff. But it yeah, just created research things research. that you would <laughs> that you would see in your nightmares mm-hmm. um and it wasn't fully fleshed out so I, I think that the this sort of ai stuff especially with regards to design is still it's infancy i played around with some of the the point e um uh stuff uh with a couple of like the, the open source or the free stuff on the webs and mm-hmm. web and like you can give it the exact same prompt five different times and it'll give you five different things wildly different it's it's not converging on anything number one number two it 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 still fails with anything anything engineering so i if you try to prompt it with something structural uh and like a lattice or or a, a pattern um it it, it kind of fails it can do you know blue duck and, and get something close so i i do think that Uh, You know, it's, it's cool to see some of the applications of using AI, which takes uh, some of the the algorithms are taking like images, 2D images, um, and like viewing them from different points. And then the algorithm or the AI basically composites those into a 3D point map. And that's Mm -hmm. really cool. I could, I could eventually see the possibility of being able to use that to augment like scan data, um, for engineering analysis. But uh, no, no—the the whole replacing engineers and even designers, like you know, we're, we got a ways to go. But eventually, yeah. I, welc- I welcome our robots. Yeah, yeah. I, I want that to be on on a uh, on the internet somewhere of me saying that. So, okay. That so, whenever so, they do take over, yeah.
2: Let's let's say one more time because I think I spoke over you for a moment. You welcome, welcome your our AI, robot,
3: our, our AI overlords.
2: Yeah. Right. So even in the paper that was released um, by the the Point E Open A I team, they called out that a, a potential misuse of the model would be to prompt it with a three D printable gear, a single gear three inches in diameter and half an inch thick, as a relevant example of what not to do, because they they they're well aware it's not me. It's it's nowhere near close to functional objects. Or for any sort of requirements for manufacturing, so I think it's it's good that they sort of state that right out the gate, so people don't, you know, misread the situation and think it's going to be solving any engineering problems anytime soon.
3: Right. Yeah, and I think that you you recently wrote an article where you didn't you attempt to use the same prompt and yeah, I, got yeah, nothing close.
2: Well, I got something that resembles a gear, but I think you know it was it was way out and each time, as you mentioned, it, it generates a different result every time, which is fine when you're trying to explore things, but when you're trying to mm-hmm. resolve things, it's not great. And, you know, it looked gearish, so I'll give them that. And the other thing I tried is because I thought, what what is there a thousand versions of that it should be able to come down to? And I thought Benchy, you know, every- Oh um, yeah, yeah. Is that's the, the default test file for 3D printing now. And uh, I got things that sort of had a hull maybe, but then right. you know, it, it was very, very variable in, in what the outputs were.
3: Yeah, which I, is was, cool. I was actually, uh, I was actually doing, uh, doing some of the prompts uh, with my kids in the room. And they were, of course, kids are creative in weird ways. So they were just like popping uh, whatever came to their head. And so they're obsessed with Pokemon right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I should have taken screenshots, but a, a, a couple of the Pokemon, like the popular Pokemon prompts and we did like spongebob we did like a running man they were just hilarious like it, it literally reminded you of like uh the ones you've seen there was there was a guy who would take like kids drawings and like turn them into yeah. 3d yeah. uh and it just it was hilarious it, was, it almost looks seems like this the same attempt uh, at like taking something fairly complicated you know slapping some points around it and and getting like a child's representation which maybe yeah. that's you know, appropriate considering that the AI technology for this particular application is in its infancy. So it's almost poetic that it's giving you, you know, solutions that a kid might think of versus, you know, a, an engineer that's designing something, but, um, I know that you, you know, you spent some time at Autodesk and, uh, you've done a lot of research here recently on like AI, um, in, commercially available software or even some software that's, you know, fledgling or coming out. So do you have any, any particular thoughts on generative design, a a series of algorithms um, that may give you a suite of potential solutions and then AI, like what, what do you, what do you think is the main difference between that? Because I think there's a lot of people that assume there's maybe a lot more AI or um, you know, Uh, technology of that sort in some softwares that are off the shelf. And I don't think that's true, right?
2: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm in discussions with a lot of the product managers at different CAD tools at the moment, trying to sort of like find out what really is going on behind the scenes. But for the most part, most of the tools that are commercially available are really using simulation to drive results. So generative design, we're going to say topology optimization is a subset of that, which is Mm -hmm. sort of really driving it. And what you're really doing is applying loads and requirements and it's generating some results based on simulation. So this is fairly, if you're doing a generative sweep, it's fairly computationally heavy to process all that information. And and that's really what's happening. And then there's um, statistics really, where you're looking at all the results and then you're mapping them, charting them, and then doing a trade-off about what you'd really want. And that's kind of, the state of the art as far as I'm aware in most, if not all tools at the moment. I do have some, you know, as I said, I've got calls with the product team about what they have going on behind the scenes for, for different products. Uh, but I, I don't think any of it's in them in the mainstream use at the moment. And if I if I look at the the emergence of the 3D AI tools that are sort of I'm going to say experiments, not tools. They're all based on image to 2d to 3d mm-hmm. and so we're, we're looking at what something looks like what not what something does and so sure. getting you know a rabbit or spongebob or spongebob steampunk spongebob we can we can sort of we, we, there's enough there's enough noise on the internet that we can drag that out and get something from it that you know yeah. will be humorous if not accurate but then sort of putting that across into you know mechanical requirements is a is a massive leap and so right. I can't, I from what I'm hearing from some of the researchers I think that the, the 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 mesh point cloud kind of um branch of this research is not the one that's going to get us there for manufacturing it's the one that's that that sort of that direction is going to get us for animations movies you know background right. movie, okay. and yeah. um you know maybe some some sweet uh 3d images in our powerpoint deck or something right. oh, or, or actually i think yeah. this would be ideal for the metaverse because you know low poly or poorly executed renders but sure. when, it, when it comes to the actual manufacturing side then i think we're going to be going more towards our existing cad data b reps and mm-hmm. and what's in those tools so i'm aware that both um ptc and autodesk have either released or enabled the the release of all of the cad data that was stored in the cloud that's been public available and then people people can scrape that and start sort of analyzing and and creating tools around that but i think again it's it's in the very very early days of that being something that would produce something of value because although they have the modeling process sometimes that was developed that was used to develop those geometries they don't always have design intent, so you could mm-hmm. figure out if something, you know, a a a a washer on a shaft makes pretty easy sense to figure out. And there's some interesting research from Autodesk and MIT CSAIL who released a paper, I think it was either late last year, on them sort of um using AI to 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 automate assemblies, like getting all these parts together and seeing how they. Pull together and pull apart. So for the right. manufacturing process, but mm-hmm. um, I don't think there's any generative processes happening yet that are available. But
3: yeah, I, yeah, I think uh, what you said that I find pretty interesting is is the you know the current tools being so visual based and not functional. Right? They're not mm-hmm. they're not looking at uh, stable diffusion of requirements or material properties. Right. Yet, but what I think uh, also is is a point to be made is is even you know because I've I've existed as a subject matter expert on both the design side and med device and the manufacturing side, Mm -hmm. and one of the things I always tell younger engineers on the manufacturing side is it is not our job to translate design intent. We get a series of manufacturing prints. um, They have tolerances on them. We make the piece according to the tolerances. Now, we may, you know, again, depending on the relationship with the customer, say, you know, hey, is this particular tolerance, which is super tight, a press fit or a snap fit to something else? Because we may have some suggestions to make. Certainly an additive, we're going to have design for additive, a lot of them, a lot of suggestions. But at the end of the day, um, they, they give us something. We're responsible for manufacturing it. And yeah. we, do, we may not know design intent. Or why they modeled something a certain way. It may be counterintuitive even. So now we're asking in a similar sense, um, you know, when you talk about even if AI gets to the point where it's it's capable of sifting through massive libraries of material properties, um, structural libraries, uh, you know, similar to what the tools are doing now. My question is, what would it do better than a series of advanced algorithms and statistical tools. Um, because for images, yeah, you, you get a, you know, maybe somebody uses text prompts as like a a, a synthesis of an idea that they could then flush out. But do we really think that that's going to be viable, that somebody's just going to be, you know, feeding kind of random prompts into this magic tool and it's going to pop something out that we think is good? Um, I, I don't know. That That's certainly inter- interesting to think about. Um, if you gave it the tools, the suite of 3D uh, models or, you know, material properties, basically whatever metadata it needed to converge on solutions, you know, what would it give you?
2: Yeah, and you, there's it's the design intent thing, which is obviously what we want it to, to sort of communicate, to, what to translate into a physical object. And as anyone who's worked in any sort of service bureau or manufacturing contract manufacturer will know that a lot of the time clients don't want to tell you what the intent is what the loads are what anything is because they that's data they want to hold near and dear and that's their their secret source that they want to keep to themselves so even if you know we we had the the AI tools to be able to train on this getting that data shared enough data to to actually produce something is going to be really really hard so we may have if a company is large enough with enough library of designs and design intent recorded somehow I don't know how um that they could train their own instance but then there's, it's in this walled garden and you kind of I expect you'd end up with this, this like resonant feedback loop where it's trained on what you've done for the past 20 years sure and and those those decisions may have been made not for the optimal, Results sometimes, you know, sometimes you've <laughs> yeah. got you've got speed, you've got cost, you've got some other thing which came into play which may not be really relevant or may have just taken you down the wrong path.
3: Yes, yeah, an so, engineer i would say that most of the times those features are informed by sales and marketing, not not engineering.
2: Mm-hmm. And so you know, the, it would be trained on a compromise. And is that what we really want? I, I, I doubt it.
3: So another thing that sort of popped into my head is is the, the fact that these tools oftentimes, you know, cause I, there was actually a paper that recently came out. I think you, you tagged me in it. That was using the stable diffusion to create almost like a 2d map. It looked kind of like a spider web that was then extruded, um, kind of as, as into, into oh, 3d. Yeah. Um, uh, development. I was, yeah, I was looking at the, I was trying to look for the name of the paper cause now I'm talking about it and I don't remember, it. uh, I hate not citing the author, but what's interesting is, um, you know, when I first started posting a lot on LinkedIn about some cool, like biomimetic designs, I think it resonated with a lot of people because it's like, oh, this stuff is really cool. We're starting to take some of these really interesting structures and, and produce them in 3d, but, uh, the more that I've done research on some of the stuff, like like random architecture, trabecular bone uh, architecture, some of the other architecture that exists in nature, the more that I've um, kind of swayed back to center towards more engineering architected materials, mostly because of their consistency. And now, now the goal is to try to understand the fusion between the two, like rather than modeling a trabecular bone structure and slapping it into a cube and saying that we expect compression of this cube to be superior to something. We really need to take design notes from nature and then figure out how to architect them into something that is regular and repeatable. um, And, you know, ideally supersedes any, you know, artificial structure that, that we may have conceived prior. And I do think that these models and and AI, like, let's say you, you just wanted to query images of, a spider web or, you know, some other pattern that it sees in nature, it's likely going to give you a suboptimal result when it comes to just pure engineering design versus just a regular repeating diamond strut lattice. And we've seen that a lot when we've done, like just FEA on, on data of some of these structures is, you know, if you get them in an ideal scenario, they perform great. But anytime you add randomness or noise, mm-hmm. uh, if that's not the original intent, of like what you're trying to do with it, then you really get a a solution that may not necessarily be ideal. Um, uh, just because again, you've got you know these these algorithms that are that are not necessarily converging on you design intended, They're highly dependent on what boundary conditions you give them. So mm-hmm. if you give them a boundary condition that's even a little bit off, you converge on something that may not even be close to what you'd originally intended.
2: Yeah, we're seeing some tools with um, like stochastic results generated to try and counter that i think whereby you know just sticking exactly to the load that the engineer has programmed in there based on their current understanding of what the stress is going to be to try and make a more robust design which i think is probably needed i think and you know the 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 fact that in nature there's there is randomness like it's not always the same forces on the same Location repeatedly mm-hmm. in in most instances. There's there's variability. There's random stuff happens. So, you know, but
3: what, and- what I think is is fascinating about that though is you know, any time you see randomness in nature, usually it's a self repairing system. It's like bone. Bone bone self repairs in response to stresses to create optimal architecture for loading conditions. That's why it's important mm-hmm. when bone is remodeling or healing there to be some sort of motion that I can yeah. respond to. Um, however, you know, if I'm 3D printing something out of titanium, my the randomness gets me less because if a strut breaks, it doesn't repair itself. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think is is also should be, you know, a definite uh sort of precursor to the original design problem is your 3D printed titanium implant isn't vascularized. It's not going to rebuild itself. So um, again, it's just, you know, when we talk to our customers and I'm informing them on what well, would they say, well, what's the best lattice? And I'm like, I mean, you got hundreds to choose from. And if you design your own from scratch, you've got tens of thousands of more, you know, you just manipulate a couple of pieces of the equation and you create something entirely new. So I think that we've, you know, got such a great suite of tools already at our disposal for, you know these implicit being able to take implicit algorithms and and turn them into crazy structures of of which you know we're actively doing a lot of that stuff and you know I think that we've got some time before AI really needs to come to the forefront to to solve problems because we still we still can't you know make use of the current additive technology in my opinion additive technology has gotten to the point where we've sort of stagnated in what we can give it to you know mm-hmm. everyone's doing the same algorithms uh, unless you go to somebody like hyperganic and they're doing some really cool things to make some crazy geometry but a lot of other people are just converging on the same topology optimizations the same loading conditions the same list of 30 strut based you know bcc lattices or whatever I mean I sound a little bit jaded but <laughs> then it's no, just no. because I see a lot of the same tools doing the same thing
2: yeah i think that's it's it's what's really required is education that this is an option this is how we approach design for this process and and here's where you can explore beyond the the known bounds of you know the standard topology optimization and the standard three lattice structures that most people go for straight away which gets me to the question like how do how do you decide which lattice structure to go for how do you down select from the infinite options you have
3: so i've got uh i and i kid you not I've got probably hundreds of unfinished workflows in multiple software suites. Um, it's my hobby, you know, people, are, I, I like roasting coffee. That's, that's kind of like my Zen roasting coffee. And, you know, I'm an engineer, so I've got a spreadsheet with different blends and some, you know, wildly failed batches, but then, you know, there's, there's time, there's temperature. When you brew the cup of coffee, there's you know espresso, there's time. Temperature, pressure. There's all these variables, size of the grind, evenness of the grind. I actually want to take a, a grind one time and send it to like an SEM and get like a particle size distribution just to just to further uh-huh. make it way more complicated than it needs to be. So just, just over
2: over-engine- engineer that coffee for <laughs> me, could you?
3: Exactly. Well, you know, you talk about the perfect cup of coffee. I think, I think you could you could get there, or at least really close. You could converge on something. Maybe that's what AI would be useful for. Anyways, um, other than obsession with coffee, uh, I, I am just obsessive over 3d design to the point where it's, it's my hobby, you know, free time, you know, take my computer home, work on it over the weekend. If I am thinking about a workflow or a solution. So the first thing is that not a lot of people do is if I am just walking down the street and I see something interesting, I'll take a picture of it on my phone and maybe a, a pattern that an artist sketched out. And the, then the next thing that happens in my head is, all right, how do I turn this into a structure, um, either something that's already available or maybe it has to be mapped from scratch. And then I figure out if it's a 2d pattern, can it be tessellated in three dimensions and, and then it goes into, you know, a pretty standard, like FEA workflow where I, uh, mesh it and then use it as a comparison against a couple of known entities. So for me, that's like a diamond, uh, strut lattice in a 20 millimeter cube, and then uh, a gyroid sheet based TPMS lattice, of which there's a lot of studies known properties, Uh, we kind of understand how they, how they crush, how they shear, how they torque um, their dynamic material properties. And then it's essentially compared to that, you know, does this particular structure as cool as it may look, move the needle in any way? Um, Does it have cool bulk modulus properties? Is it super stretchy? Does it have a negative Poisson's ratio? Uh, so that's kind of how I I start. Um,
2: are you because using using simulation to to validate yep. this, or are you printing them and testing them and no, making it's, your kids it's, break it's, them? It's
3: it's, <laughs> it's almost all simulation based right from the start, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because you know we we do have the capability to print stuff in house. But my boss uh, gets annoyed at me sometimes if I print too many widgets. He's just like, "Hey, mm-hmm. this is not making us money. Please stop." um
2: it it could one day though it could one day (laughs) exactly so
3: so back in the day you know it's probably been two three years ago uh time flies when you're having fun but you know one of the things that got a lot of traction it's my favorite animal is the 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 like structure of the mantis shrimp club the exoskeleton basically i I, you know i could go on and on about how cool this creature is it's you know if, if you've not ever heard look up um the oatmeal he's a he's a uh, an artist he does like comic strips the oatmeal mantis shrimp he's got okay. a really cool inf- and it's an informative comic but it's also hilarious at least for me yeah after okay. you did
2: the presentation for and on the mantis shrimp i went down a deep deep uh hole into <laughs> into the mantis shrimp and, and made my kids do some research on it and then the other one that I, that i like recently in my in my shrimp fetish is the pistol shrimp as well uh, yeah, you know that guy—he's pretty impressive yep. too.
3: So uh, I was, you know, at least for that. So let's talk about like, like the idea for, like the idea for something culminating in, you know, this series of research that leads to a really cool structure and what the the steps are. So like, for that, you know, you you see something like that in nature. Uh, you you see like, oh well, this this mechanism is is the, the fastest by like fastest actuating biological mechanism creating these crazy forces um and yet somehow it's able to do this repeatedly without any any sort of you know damage to the structure you know that could have crazy applications right so sort of do some research and then i realized after doing research that the only time this had ever been modeled was essentially for graphical illustrations um to like just to to show this And, and some people had modeled it in like a like a cube before and attempted to do some testing. But mm-hmm. I started thinking in my head, what if you had the ability to computationally model this essentially in, a, in an infinite space, right? Because that's the nice thing about implicit modeling is if you create a regularly repeating field, you can kind of do whatever you want with it. You can stretch it, you can you can morph it, you can conform it to various uh, uh, architecture. So that led me down a, a rabbit hole of, of recreating this structure uh, using commercially available tools in 3d as an implicit representation, which then was able to be applied, uh, have some, some really cool little demos. I was able to apply it to this little cylindrical piece. That's got a solid base and you're able to kind of put your thumb on the one side and almost move it like a joystick. It's just, and this is printed in titanium, you know, mm-hmm. just to give you an example, so it's got a crazy amount of movement. I think when we did it in an FEA, like in compression because all these fibers are disconnected and they're wrapped and they're woven, you know, it just has a, um, uh, you know, it can withstand pretty good amount of force, but it's able to also flex far beyond any other structure filling the same volumetric density, uh, without plastic deformation, which we're really interested in, in the medical space, because the idea of printed structures that, that can deal with a lot of strain, um, but still not get to that plastic, you know, plastic uh, deformation gives us a really cool suite of things that we can use for dynamic movement eventually. So think about like artificial joints that are additively manufactured without any kind of like rubbing surface. Um, So these things are what, what I think that, that, you know, you would never be able to take architecture, at least not commercially available at the time and get that kind of application out of it, but using. You know, biologically informed structure number one, having the skill set and then know how and the tools to be able to translate it into 3D. Number two, and then with additive manufacturing, now you can produce that where ordinarily that you would never been able to produce that with any other technology before that it would have been, you know, beyond impossible. Uh, which, and then you can validate it. You can say, does this thing, which I, you know, looked at in an FEA and, and, you know, with, with CAD tools. Uh, does it actually do what i think it's going to do and and if when it does or if it does then you've got essentially another material to put in your pocket and say hey this is a custom material it's in a library it's now readily available for customers or or designers to use
2: so so the option is in the near future we'll have an instagram filter of the mantis shrimp for anyone who's doing some sort of um pliable (laughs) <laughs> implant that needs this sort of stresses on it and the strength to 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 flex where in, in the right orientation. Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah, maybe. Yeah, that that was kind of the, I think the first thing that that I think got a little bit of a, a buzz, right? Of what what's possible. Two
0: hundred exhibitors, four stages, one hundred speakers, and one thousand years of combined experience. TCT360 is firmly established as the UK's definitive 3D printing and additive manufacturing event and registration is now open. Between the 7th and 8th of June this year, TCT360 will bring together market leading technology suppliers and services, as well as the largest free additive manufacturing conference on the planet. TCT360 is a free must-attend event for anyone looking to evaluate, adopt or optimise 3D printing technology within their business. Join us on the 7th and 8th of June at the NEC in Birmingham. To register, go to www.tct360.com.
3: i you know, the other things that I think are cool and, and anybody that is listening, um, feel free to, to send me a message on LinkedIn with like your favorite biological structure. And I would love to attempt to model it, um, I'm working on a few, a few applications for a presentation i'm going to do later this year at, at rapid that's going to have a couple of really cool things uh, it includes my one of my new favorite bugs the diabolical ironclad beetle
2: oh yeah uh, yeah the one in the volcanic sort of depths of the ocean yeah uh I,
3: i'm not no i think that's a, i think that's the the sea snail that's got like the iron yeah like this this is actually a, a beetle that has like a really interesting um sort of, of joint on its back. And so it can withstand a huge amount of like crushing force. Like you basically run it over with a car and it's fine. And so I was like, man, I was fascinated by the idea of being able to model that sort of uh, interlocking structure in, in, you know, computationally, and then be able to take that and be able to morph it to almost like, like sheet, like material, or even in three dimensions and mm-hmm. so my goal is to to see if i we can't like print something out that almost is like a like a flexible flexible 3d printed sheet that still is and captured by the fact that it's joint architecture and that and that's kind of the the new thing that i'm currently obsessed obsessed with
2: so what what we're talking about here is is modeling nature what's the sort of timeline of the tools that have been made available that have made this possible for, to actually do this because you know, doing, doing the the math is one thing, but making it into a 3d object, which is then manufacturable is a a, a journey.
3: You know, I'm not, you know, I guess, I guess I'll make this caveat up front. I, you know, I'm not a paid sponsor for any one software company. You know, we sit in a weird (laughs) intersection where we don't, we don't really use tools to create products that we sell as, as a manufacturer. Um, you know, we basically get designs, we may have some feedback on them mm-hmm. and then we print the designs, they they go to the customer that owns the designs and the customer sells them to the surgeons. So I do wanna make it clear up front that like we don't really monetize it necessarily. I do a lot of work just for education in general. Everything I post on LinkedIn is is mostly just education based. Um, here's mm-hmm. this cool thing. And there's so some you're, things you're, that we work yeah. on that are-
2: So your design work currently ahead. is experimental and exploratory, not, not or a particular application at that point in time for a client is what we're getting at yeah. Right.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, because obviously we've got NDAs in place and anything we're developing with a client. Now, not to say we don't develop things with clients um, that may be novel architecture, but those yeah. are, you know, ultimately owned by the, the client. Um, uh-huh. So a lot of the stuff that I do, again, you know, and I people have said before, like, hey, Matt, why are you, you know, don't you know the patent laws once you post this on the internet? You, you can't, you know, there's no IP that you can get anywhere off of it It's public domain. I'm like, well, I don't really care about that. You know, my, my hope is that eventually seeing something in the future, I might be able to say, yeah, I, maybe I had a, maybe somebody saw that thing I posted initially and had a little bit of, of, mm. of idea for what they could do with it. But that's never really been a goal. But, but, you know, when you talk about like the software, I, I wanted to go down that because I, I, I am a, people know, I make it clear I'm a fan event topology, but, but I was also. I guess you would consider like an alpha user of their current software tool, and had a a, a big hand in some of the, the tools and you know a lot of the the, the fixes, the bugs. So what's interesting about that uh, software, and and some people have done something similar, which is with basically code it similarly the implicit modeling in Python themselves. It's it's possible, mm-hmm. but what's interesting is with tools like that, they they basically you know they're doing what most people need it to do right i want to put this structure in this space to get a piece that i can print but having the interface to be able to work directly with the algorithms themselves implicit algorithms the fields uh, the implicit fields which are just math you know math visualized uh, in my opinion allows for the designers to um, really play in the space Uh, because sometimes you don't really know what you're I don't really know what I'm doing. I may get in there and and start with a particular algorithm or architecture and and just do a couple of different commands on it. You know, mathematical commands, sometimes they're, you know, it's literally just a subtraction, addition, division, multiplication of of multiple fields and seeing what the result is. So there's some experimentation. and, And recently we've been talking with a company that does something similar. They basically, you give it kind of a seed, equation and it looks at all the variables and it uh steps through each of those in like a giant grid so you've got you know term one term two term three each has a different variable and it takes that variable from zero to 100 and then basically builds out a field and then you can do an analysis on all the material properties that you get out of that you know whether it's volumetric density um you know if you want to do uh analysis on it it could be Different compression strengths, and yeah. what I think is is cool about that is that then gives you access, like like you mentioned before, like a almost like a grid yeah, of, of sacri- yeah. sacrifices, yeah. right? You know, yeah. sacrificing this or that. And then what I think is really cool with these field optimization tools is let's say you let's say your design space is extraordinarily complicated, which a lot of the times it is. You've got a a really complex bracket that sees different forces and loading conditions and has different requirements in different areas for bolts. Mm-hmm. So then you can say, hey, my material properties in zone one need to be this, in zone two need to be this, and zone three need to be this. And you can take, you know, with this, these field representations and morph the structures from point A to B to C, you know, and it's, again, it's just math. It's just saying point A, it's this, point B is this. I'm gonna define the equation from point A to B with a, a transfer function uh, or a ramp. And grade them. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and, you know, again, I'm I'm very familiar with entopology, but I know that uh, some design tools from Carbon 3D are sort of to to come out with their design engine. Um, They've got different zones, and they they basically Mm -hmm. do a ton of research on each structure and what material properties you're going to get. And so you can kind of grade between material properties. Yeah, Um, that's a that's a
2: benefit of having a limited material palette you're working with, rather than the infinite material properties of that's, that's available yeah
3: yeah that's a smart choice and they they acquired paramatters and paramatters has really awesome generative design tools um, with a like kind of a validated uh, like fea for yeah. a- analysis we've actually found that their their fea is is very close to reality where a lot of the times in additive um, with the material that we use titanium you you can the fea tools on really complicated pieces aren't quite there from what yeah. we've seen things fail yeah. a lot sooner than the theoretical models predict that they will and i don't know if that's just a limitation because all the stresses that are in notch sensitive materials like titanium i think that's probably what it is but um that i, I again you know when you talk about tools that it just wouldn't have been possible we we had a couple of tools back in when i was first getting into 3d um, So there was like a solidworks add-on you know i don't this is probably six seven years ago i mean when they first came out with it and then there was anthropology element like anthropology's mm-hmm. first yeah, 3d software license.
2: yeah
3: um and it, i just even back then even five years ago uh, i'm not aware of any tools kind of like anthropology or others now they're using a lot of implicit modeling
2: yeah. well, um, well actually well, Nearly every major CAD company now has implicit functions, either under the hood, or in development, or exposed. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm at five yeah. years ago. Oh, uh, five years ago, yeah, yeah, n-
3: yeah. Now, yeah, I know that uh, other people, like you know Autodesk uh, in Fusion 360, has uh, like implicit. I, I know that uh, well, there's a couple. We just we just talked to a company, um, another software company. Uh, they're they're pretty big.
2: Yeah, um, my, PTC, they, they, so all yeah, they yeah, all have some implicit uh, functionality now. Oh. It brings us to like the next step. So, in, you know, implicits have been around for a while and they're used in like geological surveys, so huge amounts of data in, in big areas, mm-hmm. you know, processing information. And it was kind of Entop who brought it into the mechanical engineering space, right? And so, but the other the CAD companies have been like, you no. Know, Auto Autodesk's generative design was using level sets, which is kind of a, a similar thing, in my understanding, um, for, for years, for way before Entop was around. So right. it's 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 been sort of evolving. I think that um, just Entop exposed it as a front and center. This is a field communication where the others didn't in the same way. But now what we're like, I'm you know with 3mf we're adopting implicit. As a file format for volumetric um, communication of objects so what that allows is not just the geometry itself but any other data that's within the object so there's a company out of the uk called additive flow who you can using simulation and optimization with ai they can modify the build parameters within a part to change material properties within the object and so this is this is using fields to drive not the geometry but the, mm-hmm. the material properties and performance which i think you know when you combine these all together and right, and this similarly with um with parameters as well they can drive material or machine parameters to drive material properties within object as well they did some interesting work with um an fdm sort of process which which is super interesting so where the complexity of the di- design space is going to get is going to get is going to get really intense <laughs> when you have right when you have all these options available to you so I think you know that the the tools and the, the the machines can do it to a certain degree the tools can do it to a certain degree but engineers sort of need to understand that this is an option so is this education so I think what that's what what's really important about kind of what you're doing and promoting this information and not putting it behind a patent or, you know, keeping it secret sourced close to your chest is that people need to understand that this is happening and that they need to start thinking in this way about what's inside the object, not just what's mm-hmm. the outside of the object.
3: Right. Yeah. And, I, and, and I know that you're in kind of the education space now where, where you're, you're working to um commoditize some of the design for additive and and really kind of bring together some some of your kind of experts to discuss this in a readily available format and at the end of the day people have to make money so one of the things that i say is like commoditization stifles innovation because big companies that that innovate like what are they getting out of it well they want a patent portfolio they want to be able to monetize you know ip and so there is a resistance to commoditization of any technology or any, any knowledge, because no one's making money off of it. So I, what I think, and maybe this is just me, I'm sort of anti-establishmentarianism anyways. Um, But one of the thoughts behind this whole implicit modeling is fundamentally, it's just math and everybody has access to math. So like, think of like a gyroid, I think that there was, you know, there's, there's like a patent for somebody patented Using gyroid architecture and implants. And in my mind, I'm like, that's silly, because a gyroid is just an equation. And it's like somebody's patenting a mathematical representation in like a part. Like it just, it didn't necessarily sit well with me Mm -hmm. um, that somebody like takes a readily available thing, you know, and then locks it down. Because let's say I come up with a new meta material. You know, one of the cool things that I that I was working on recently is essentially. Uh, I think I I made a video about this recently. Is essentially using like two desynchronized fields. You know, I use gyroids as a good example because they're uh, kind of tessellated regularly in XYZ. Mm-hmm. So you basically kind of like use an algorithm to desynchronize them fairly precisely, and then you use the intersection of the two fields. Um, to basically create this cool interwoven piece. And then you can essentially, you know, you can kind of do it again. You can pattern it again and it creates another kind of times two multiple of the interwoven space. So you can go from like two interwoven pieces to four to eight um, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And then essentially subtract any of the disconnected pieces you don't want, like mm-hmm. it, you know, in your in your model. Fighting, yeah. But yeah. So, but again, at the end, at the end of the day, it's just taking two fields, doing some manipulation on them. That's just math and then figuring out what the result is. So maybe I just have a different viewpoint of what should be readily available and what people feel like, you are not know, going to, I'm going to IP patent, patent protect this. Because I, I do think that we benefit the designers, the engineers, the manufacturers all benefit when people have accessible knowledge to what does it take to get a designed and two printers because it's still the wild west out there you know working trying to trying to harmonize this whole 3mf thing making Mm -hmm. file types readily available and getting machine manufacturers on board to be able to like read files um like that's just it's kind of crazy and and everyone wants that you know it in their own proprietary format um
2: yeah the the proprietary format thing is all about control and some companies say they need it so they can make sure that everything's you know aligned and it's gonna work perfectly every time. But it just puts a lot of effort, duplicated effort, which makes things move slowly. So if we share information as much as we can, you know, the the parameters for a laser powder bed fusion machine shouldn't be magic source. That should be known and used, and then we can concentrate our Energy and time and expertise in doing making things better, not just scanning a laser across some powder. It's a yeah. the, the amount of people who are doing the same research on the same pro- problem is just mind-blowingly frustrating. I know it's just yeah. a huge duplication of effort.
3: Yeah, it, it is pretty interesting. So, so let me ask you this: just you know, because we, you know, as a manufacturer, we you know, pride ourselves on our ability to make really pretty parts,
1: mm-hmm. and
3: that was as a result of a, a huge amount of early on effort to yeah. you essentially refine our own parameter set. So the the downside, again, anytime a customer says I need this part made, and they've got a choice between fifty or hundred manufacturers, um, if if they want to make it subtractively, you know, it's going to get cut. On a on a mill, um, probably almost the exact same way at, at those fifty manufacturers. There may be a slight difference in feed speeds of the cutting tool, but at the end of the day, it's going to look almost identical. Now you take that to fifty different additive manufacturers. I think you're probably going to get fifty different looking pieces. Fifty different material strengths. Again, assuming that they're not all using the exact same. I mean, parameter that's set, a problem.
2: But, that's a problem.
3: Yeah, but I guess the question is, you know, what. Uh, what then sets apart a manufacturer from another, like in a competitive space, you know, if, if manufacturer A can make a part far better with B does manufacturer A, should they feel obligated to release this set of parameters, um, to the general public uh,
2: that, maybe, you know, it should, that, yeah, maybe it, it shouldn't be individual commercial entities creating those parameters. Like there's a lot of research labs says mm-hmm. around the world. There's a lot of right in ngos there's a lot of not-for-profits who who could sort of say okay let's let's bite the bullet and, and release some better parameters so we don't have to duplicate all this effort and then yep. your your business is based on service and you know there's there's an, there's enough variables with humans that can that can make the difference the service bureau isn't just a machine running there's a bunch of people there as well sure. so i think there's room for for differentiation that isn't just the machine. And on the, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say on the on the CNC side, on the subtractive side. Um, when I was at Autodesk, they had just acquired Delcam, and mm-hmm. Delcam has like decades of experience in in subtractive machining, and they have a, a research facility in their offices in Birmingham and what's amazing is when there's there's always there's always a robot going there's always a machine some machining happening mm. and there's always a guy with his nose pressed against the glass of the CNC machine even though you know it's a pretty known um, process for machining metal and the feeds and speeds are important when you can hear when something's wrong like the sound of the of the of the machine is has a different tone and even two floors up in the building you see all the guys with you know one missing finger who have been in the space for long enough <laughs> they all sort of you see their body just like just just the tension in their in their body as they hear the sound not being quite right reverbering through the building and they all sort of stop yeah. mid-conversation and then you hear the sound come back down again mm, and then everyone sort of relaxes and carries on like nothing happened so yeah there, there is still plenty of plenty of black art in in other areas that not yeah, just attitude yeah, we, not we just
3: we do, uh, we do subtractive uh, oh, yeah. in house as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't attempted. I wasn't a sliding subtractive. To say they're they're all the same <laughs> because our post processing manager would have some some words with me. Um, yeah, and you're certainly right, especially subtractive machining of additive parts. That's that's definitely on the newer side of you know it's a little bit more close to machining of like investment castings and forgings than it is mm-hmm. like from scratch. So that's it's a whole other beast. But what you said about like releasing material properties is interesting. And I don't I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too far of like the regulatory space, but we also interface pretty closely with the, mm-hmm. the FDA with regards to like customer submissions to the FDA for their products because the FDA essentially clears all the products that we produce for our customers. So what I think is interesting is that at AM Medical last year in November, recently, there was a lot of talk. You know, it was really good conversation in the room of one of the, the panels of like should should there be a submission to the fda of like unknown like material properties and in this particular discussion was was with regards to like resin um, like resin properties for um like ultraviolet curing like additive mm-hmm. manufacturing processes but what my, my mind went to was sort of metal properties because you've got astm standards for uh f-3001 defines powder bed fusion properties for grade 23 titanium. So, and so uh, you could say hey I'm I'm compliant to the ASTM F3001. However, what's interesting is if the FDA sees your material properties for the device are significantly higher than F3001, then they they start getting wary about like worst case. Well, you know, yeah, you're you're exceeding the standard by 20%, but what happens if your manufacturer process changes and they still meet the standard but now they're producing your device uh, with a material strength that's fifteen or twenty percent less than mm-hmm. your originally tested device, because there's no harmonization. Mm-hmm. Let's say you switch manufacturers. This guy still says he's ASTM F three thousand one compliant, but there's still a twenty five percent difference in the processes material properties, which has led us to some very interesting discussions with how the FDA even would would think about having like a property, like a material property or a process. Let's say process is probably a better word a process be submitted which is you with know, this machine with this power with this tool path with this uh powder uh with this gas flow like like how many design variables do you need to lock down in order for you to submit oh. a process control the process
2: and then say yeah. that
3: it's now good
2: there's a that chart was i think it was developed by some japanese researchers which show all the variables in a laser powder bed fusion system and there's, there's like it's huge this huge chart and i think hey, like i guess 80 that's well, maybe maybe more maybe more and then i think we have we have this and then we have this the saying that which is great marketing which is complexity is free but it's it's, right. it's it's really not as it's really time consuming and expensive
3: well and you know and you mentioned it before like the researchers all doing the same research but you know if if i have i say 80 uh, because i think we've done the calculation that like there's 80 variables that we can tweak that have an influence on at the end of the day, it's the volumetric density of the, of the energy density that goes into the process. It's kind of what gets you your fusion and your microstructure and your strength. But like some of the variables, like, you know, that you can have access to on these machines are like, you know, off laser off delay when it's cornering, you know, and it's like the difference of like, well, I could slide it from, you know, half a millisecond to 25 milliseconds. And it's like, who cares? I mean, who cares? but like some of those things, yeah, they don't really matter. And you've got people that are like tweaking all these things and these huge designs of experiment. And at the end of the day, it's, it's no, it's a lot of noise, um, without a lot of people trying to harmonize or dive into solution. We see that with big companies that have lots of R and D dollars is that it takes them a long time to converge on a solution. Cause there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Everybody has a little bit of, to say about, well, this, you know, I need the service finish to look like this Well, I need it to be faster, to be cheaper. Whereas back in the day, when tangible was first getting started, um, it was like live or die. You know, you, you, we, we came up with something because we had to, you know, because it was the life of the company, not because we just had lots of dollars to throw at research. So I think that this whole thing, although not as sexy as design, design of parts, this whole like design of parameters, um, and like what you were talking about that using AI to adjust, like kind of on the fly parameters or Velo3D does like a, um, they basically do like, uh, like melt pool modulation, depending Mm -hmm. on like local, uh, features of size and like thermal monitoring. That's really Mm -hmm. cool too. Um, but again, it all boils down to who's doing the research. Who's it for? Is it proprietary? Uh, It's inaccessible really
2: yeah and that does seem to be you know bringing back our conversation to ai where this does seem to be applications which make sense is finding the optimal between the known and to, to modify those parameters either on the fly or layer by layer mm-hmm. to 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 get those properties better so it it, it is interesting to see that happening but, but i think there's honestly there's a lot more r d effort and um, human brain power going into those aspects than the design side and we we see the the there's the machines and materials and are improving so much in the last five years it's, it's been very very impressive but the designs aren't really as quickly as that so we, we need to sort of educate people and this is what i've been working on is to, to help people understand that okay the 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 guys have, have, have figured out a lot of the machines and material stuff. Now we need to sort of make sure the engineers know how to make the things that go to the machines. Because if we look at you know if we if we if we look at the throughput of those machines and what's going to them, that they they need a lot more to make them financially viable. That we need more people designing for it to the, these companies to succeed. And we're seeing you know are the ones who have gone public struggle you know with their with with their business model of, of just selling machines to the same you know ten people, so that's my hot right. take. <laughs> no, uh, that
3: that's uh that's that's actually interesting. I think that uh, pre COVID there was actually several you know at least powder bed fusion machine manufacturers that had just a monstrous amount of inventory, and a, a few of them were like considering basically been like, oh shoot, we just we have all these machines sitting around. We, like they created their own machine park and started like producing pieces for people yeah, because they, yeah. they weren't selling the machines or there was like, oh, some some higher-ups were like, hey, you gotta do something with these. You got a hundred of them sitting around. So we also did yeah. that, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I, I like that hot take because um, we, yeah, we, we also are like, all right, so some, so someone's trying to sell a tangible machine, but then they're also competing with us by you know going to our customers and saying, oh, we can print the devices for you too. And we own the machines, you know, there there are machines. We know how to work them. And yeah. so that that's a it's a weird business model for sure. It's
2: problematic. I think for the for the startups who start off building their own machine but then doing a service first, I think that makes loads of sense because that means they right. can they can learn about the machines, the process, the optimize, what mm-hmm. what businesses make sense, what the what parts make sense, how to you know, get everything tuned before they start. Putting that problem onto a onto a customer who wants to install the machine so but going back the other way from selling machines and then making parts of people it's, it's it is competing with your customers and if they have input into if, you know, if it's a cloud-based solution with with they can track what sort of data you're getting in your machines that's even more mm-hmm. problematic if there's not a, a very uh, if there's if there's not a a, a data wall i think is that the term they use Right. data moat or whatever it is to, to stop that leaking across that that would be a problematic situation mm-hmm.
3: yeah no, I, I agree